and we're climbing, and then I, I was kind of waiting for that. Well, he's 75, well, he's 76 now. 75, like, he must want to turn around sooner than later, and no, it was me who had to be like, I, I think this is halfway, Jim. It's time, time to go home. So it's, it's always fun. Uh, let's open our Bibles here this morning, uh, but I'm going to actually do something a little bit different this morning. Usually what we do is we read our main passage and then we're going to bounce around. Today we're going to bounce around a little bit first before we get there. But our main passage, which you can turn to now, is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 59. So if you are visiting or if you've missed a couple of Sundays, basically we've been talking for, for a little while here. This is the second longest chapter in the New Testament. And so we've been dealing with this idea of resurrection. In the church in Corinth, there was a lot of, confused views about what the resurrection meant. Uh, people denying that they would rise again and that it was just kind of ethereal, this, this only my soul will rise. And, and Paul's very concerned about that. And, and actually he goes as far as to say, if you deny the resurrection, then you deny the gospel. And so he clarifies for us and he shows us what it means that, that we will rise again. But now as we finish this last little bit of resurrection, and here's the crazy bit, is next week we're going to finish the book of 1 Corinthians almost a year later. But in these just short nine verses, Paul takes a bit of a different approach now from talking about our resurrection, though he is still going to talk about that a little bit. But you can sense this, this movement in his spirit about recognizing the second coming of Christ. Yes, there are those who have died who will be raised again, but for those who are here when Christ comes back, that becomes his focus. And how exciting that is. And so I want to ask you a question before we even begin reading through any texts. And the question is this, do you think about Jesus' second coming? As Scripture says, do you long for his appearing? Over the past week to 10 days or so, I've been reading through the book of Luke with a friend, and the more I keep reading Luke, the more I keep seeing all these resurrection themes and these things just impact my own heart. And one of them is this in Luke 12, 39. Jesus says this, but know this, the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming. He would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus commands us to be ready. And as I read that a couple of days ago in Luke 12, and I was just kind of dwelling on that, I came with this thought, I was like, how are we supposed to be ready for something when we, by nature, don't know when it's going to happen? Right? Jesus says in the Gospels that nobody knows the day or the hour. And that's kind of the point. Right? It's how many people have, have, over the course of history, said this is the day that Jesus is coming, only for that to not happen is we don't know when it's coming. So how are we supposed to be ready for that? I think the answer, I think what Jesus is getting at is actually pretty simple. Our focus needs to remain on Jesus each and every day so that we're not caught unaware and, and our minds are not consumed with spiritual things, but they're only consumed on material is we need to focus on what God has called us to do. And, and let me just be clear, that might mean for many of you the exact job that God has placed you in, the people that God has placed you around, the influence that you get to have. Sometimes we think of our calling from God as only some kind of a, uh, I have to go and do instead of be and tell people who Jesus is. Model who Jesus is by the way that I love them, the way that I care for them, the way that I treat them. 
And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Paul talks about knowing Jesus in the book of Philippians, and he talks about it in this depth of knowledge and understanding that he wants to share in every bit with Jesus, and I think that's what we should be doing as well. If you go back in history, the Old Testament, when it finished, so the book of Malachi, when it finishes, and then when Jesus finally comes unseen in Matthew, does anybody know how long? 400 years, Lee said. Yeah, 400 years. Theologians call it 400 years of silence. It's, it's as if it was this belief that God had spoken everything he needed to speak to prepare his people for the Messiah. And then he said, now wait. Wait and be patient. Well, it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus came. And are we waiting and are we waiting patiently? But are we waiting expectantly? Are we waiting with a focus on Jesus? Back in the Old Testament, between basically Abraham and the end of the Old Testament is just about that same distance that we have now of around 1,800 to 2,000 years. And what we see in the Old Testament is people that they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew he was predicted. They were waiting, but it was taking so long that some of them lost focus and lost hope. And they were just living their normal lives. And over and over and over in the Old Testament, God had to come and rebuke the people through the prophets because they had gotten complacent. Well, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet, so we just start to think about our normal life, the things that I have to do tomorrow and the day after, and our focus shifts away from Jesus. And so constantly the prophets would come and declare to them, come back to the Lord. And they needed to hear that, and I wonder how much we need to hear that as well. Are we ready for Jesus' second coming? Are we thinking about him? Are we dwelling upon him? Are we realizing that the job you have and the people that you get to interact with and those, your friends, your family, whoever, that you are there and in that place for purpose and reason and it's not just to make money or to enjoy life or to have a lot of toys. It's to declare Christ and to make him known. If we knew, if we knew for certainty, and again, this is very hypothetical, that Jesus was coming back in, let's say, next year at this time, how different would our lives look? How much more intentional would we be to go and share Jesus with our friends and our families, those that we love, that we don't dare want to think of them not coming to heaven? How much more intentional would we be if, if we knew It's a rhetorical question that I've just been thinking and pondering and wondering about. Why didn't Jesus give that hour? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. But for our purposes this morning, I think what we need to do is remind ourselves that our focus needs to be back on his resurrection and his second coming. Not necessarily as one event, but as as one act. That Jesus is coming again. Paul viewed it this way in Philippians 1.21. He says this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He simply viewed it as, as long as I'm here and have breath, my life exists for Christ. But how I long to be with my Savior. If you ever spend any time uh, with Clara, she talks about that a lot. Longing to be with her Lord. And I mean, 96 odd years, and good for you. Her focus is still on the Lord and on Jesus. 
And that is my prayer for all of us, that we look at this with this sense of like, if I have breath, and, and I've heard Clara say this in a unique way, where she says something like, I don't know why the Lord hasn't taken me yet, so I guess I'll pray for the church, for you. And she tells me often that she prays for me purpose and meaning. And so when we are still breathing, know that you are breathing because Christ has purpose for your life, for where you are right now. He has meaning for that. But we should also long for that second coming in the sense of when he comes again, that I get to be with him and nothing that this earth has can compare with that at all. And I think that's where the conviction was for me as I was reading through the book of Luke. Sometimes I lose focus and I really like the things of this earth. And I really enjoy what God has made. And that's good, we should. But not at the expense of, I would rather be here than with Christ. Our focus, my focus, so often needs to shift. And so this is where we find ourselves. So let's read Luke, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 59. Paul concludes this section by saying this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. At the last trumpet, he says in verse 52, and this is a common imagery that exists through Scripture, talking about the second coming, that when Jesus comes back, the trumpet will sound. It says, in the twinkling of an eye. Actually, in the Greek, the idea is the actual shortest possible of time that exists. So as fast as you can blink, Christ will come down and everything will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul writes it this way. He says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is why Paul starts this text by talking about flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's talked at length already about what happens to those who have already died, how their bodies will be raised, similar but better. Just this morning, I finished uh, Luke, and as I was reading, it's about Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus says to them, he says, I'm not a ghost, for I have flesh and blood and bones just like you. And he's been raised from the dead. And so when we think about, and we talked about this much over the last few weeks, so I don't want to dwell here, but we go back to the Garden of Eden, back to how Adam and Eve were originally created. That's what we'll be like. 
What exactly that means, I'm not 100% sure, but I know it'll be like we are now, but better. Suited to an eternity where we are going to go. And so those who have died, that's what will happen. Those of us who are left alive, and that's the vernacular Paul uses. I don't think his point is trying to say that he thinks that he's going to be there for Jesus' second coming. Maybe he's eagerly awaiting this, but he also recognized throughout his ministry, and you see this in most of his letters, that he was ready to die at any moment because he expected that he was going to be killed, that he was going to be attacked. And so I think the vernacular that he's using is those who have died and then those who haven't yet. At that point, when Jesus comes back, you will be changed. It's this mystery that he calls it. In verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. Leon Morris wrote it this way in his commentary. Neither the living nor the dead at the coming of Christ will go into the kingdom of God as they are. Both must be changed. Whether there was a view in Corinth that the people who were thinking when the resurrection happened, if I'm still alive, what happens to me? Am I going to raise? I haven't died yet. And so how can, how can God cha- raise me as well? And, and Paul just basically says, it doesn't matter. Both have to be changed. And both will be changed miraculously. It will be a thing that Jesus does for us. Though, back to his point here, he says that the, the ra- they will be raised imperishable. He says it very clearly, the mortal body must put on immortality. In other words, he will change you who you are right now. Your body is ill-equipped for eternity. And so he will fix that and he will make it complete. Then he quotes this interesting couple of passages uh, from Isaiah and from Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, this is an interesting thing because in both Isaiah and Hosea, these were, we call them, dual prophecies. They're speaking of both Christ's original coming and his second coming. Two things at once. And we, we talk about it this way sometimes in our Bible studies, that there's this theology in the Bible of already but not yet. We've been forgiven. Our sins are dealt with. And so death, does it have victory over us? No. Death, it was conquered on the cross. But yet we still will die. And so what Paul's trying to get us at here is both aspects of this. There's one aspect that's been dealt with already, but there's another that's yet to come. When Jesus comes for his second coming, there will no longer be any death whatsoever of any kind. So let's look at these two aspects. So first of all, if you're a Christian, and somebody you love that loves Jesus has passed away. Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us that we don't grieve the way the world grieves, but we have hope because we know we'll see them again. And so in that sense, death doesn't have the final say, but we know there's better things ahead. But yet we also know that we still grieve. That doesn't make the grieving process I think it makes it different, but I don't know that it makes it any less. If a wife or a husband or a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or so on, if somebody you love desperately dies, even if you know they will be with Jesus for all eternity, that doesn't just make it all your feelings just dealt with. 
there's still hurt. There's still grief. There's still a process that we need to go through. And, and so I think Paul's saying, don't worry, death has been conquered, but it's going to be conquered even more fully at that day. And then no one shall experience death. In the book of Romans, uh, Paul kind of lays out the gospel in a very unique way. And in Romans 6.23, he explains to us that the wages of sin is death. And so the reality is, is for those of us who are here before Jesus comes back, we still have to face that. There's still a consequence for our sin. That's physical death. Praise the Lord, the gift of God is eternal life. And so we don't have to live in that sense. In Galatians 3.13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus became our curse. He paid the penalty for our sin from an eternal perspective, but when he comes back again, death will be completed already. So I was thinking of this, where is your sting? And as I was reading various commentaries, one person talked about scorpions and bees. And, and I remember being terrified of bees as a child. Anybody? No, just me? Okay. Uh, Ernie will relate. Uh, once you become an adult, you no longer fear bees because A, they're super cute and they're fuzzy. And B, they leave you alone. But what should you be afraid of? Wasps. And uh, when Ernie was trimming, you can actually see it. If you just walk out the door, there's a wasp nest that Ernie brought into my office, you know, plenty after the wasps died, just to prove to me, here's, here's what stung me, right? And so there was this, all summer, there was this piece of the hedge just poking up that was just this reminder of wasps are scary. We'll just leave them alone. If you want to ask Merv about a wasp story on the roof, that one is worth hearing as well. But when you think about, so the bee, uh, if you think when you're a little kid, right? When you're a little kid, maybe the bees are a little bit more scary, right? Because they might sting you. And that, that hurts, and, and you don't want any part of that. But what happens if you live in a world where the bee doesn't have a stinger? Are you afraid of the bee? The bee becomes just like a normal housefly, except better because it's cuter and does good things for the environment. I don't know what a fly does. Right? But the bee that doesn't have a stinger is something that there's zero fear of. There's no, and that's the idea here. Oh, death, where is your sting? doesn't have any power over us anymore. So we don't need to fear death. I remember when I was a kid thinking so much about, I hope that I am here when Jesus comes back and I have not died yet because simply I had this view of I just didn't want to go through any kind of pain or death. Right? I think that's pretty normal for a kid. But how much as we grow older do we have that in our minds too where I don't want to go through that. I don't want to, and, and we forget that, oh, death, where is your sting? Now, that doesn't mean that we won't go through suffering and hurt. We've talked a great deal about that over the weeks and months. There's still pain. There's still hurt. But only here and now and one day we know that all of that will be dealt with. And so we should view death in the same way as we view a bee without a stinger. Is it a threat to us? Not one bit. Praise the Lord for that. And so... We have this already not yet kind of theology that we are holding on to. And Paul says this as he concludes this section. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
This is my prayer for you. And not only those of you who are regulars, but everybody who loves Jesus. This is my prayer for all of us. That we would be immovable and steadfast. That nothing that we experience on this earth could take us away from believing and trusting in Christ because there's nothing greater than that. And the more we study scripture and the more we study who Jesus is, what he did for us and his unconditional love for us, I hope that that just helps us grow deeper and deeper and deeper so that nothing can rip us apart from that. And we just know, even though this that I'm going through, this disease, this illness, this crisis situation, even though all of that that I'm going through, and I don't know how to navigate it, I have a Savior that I can lean on. But notice also what he says. Abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This reminded me of something Jesus said in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Here's the biggest bit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Paul and what Jesus are saying here is that we need to be anchored in what the Lord is doing in our lives because that has meaning and purpose. When we think, uh, in fact, many studies talk about this, uh, men particularly, but I, I, and so I just am speaking on behalf of men, women, I think you can probably relate to this too. But men in particular, when they think about their legacy and the end of their life, that many cannot handle the idea that they didn't accomplish something of value in the big picture of things. We want to matter. We want our life to have had Meaning beyond just, oh, he was a nice person who did nice things and then 20, 50, 100 years later is forgotten about. There's a legacy that we want to have. And, and I would say this, is that what Jesus and what Paul are saying is if you work for the Lord in whatever it is that you do, if you work for the Lord, there has eternal significance there and your legacy is in Jesus Christ. And that will never be forgotten. So again, I'm not trying to say that it's time for you to just switch careers. Though if you're at a place where you say, I don't know how to honor God in the place that I work, then perhaps it is. But what I am saying is that you approach your work with a new sense of purpose and meaning that no matter what it is, that I can speak to others about Jesus and I can show others his love and his grace. I've told this story before, but there's a, there's a man that I got to know many years ago who was a piano tuner, and uh, as a, not Lee, sorry. Feel free to let this speak to you directly. Um, he, uh, he was a piano tuner, and when you talk to him, he said this. He said, I'm an evangelist who's a piano tuner. That was his view. And he had actually led more people to Christ than any other person that I know personally. And he just used piano tuning as a vehicle to honor God. Now, that does not mean that you have a, like a chalkboard list and as long as you have a certain amount of converts, then your job is worth it. Like, that's not the point. 
The point is he used his job as a vessel to be able to tell people about Jesus. So the question that I have for you then comes back to that first question. Do you think about Jesus' second coming? Is how you work and how you live pointed in that direction? That those that you work with, that those that you work for, that those that you interact with, that they know there's something different about you, that you do your work in a different way, for a different purpose. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. And when we are focused on Jesus, when we are focused on his coming, then all the stresses and anxieties and pains and all the things in the world, they're still there, but they're less important to us. Because we know a day is coming when Christ will return. And so the hurt, the difficulty, the uncertainty, all those things that I have, I, can not, I don't have to dwell on them, but I can lay them at the foot of the cross. And I can know that Jesus walks with me through those things. That I have hope and that I have purpose. So, do you eagerly wait for Jesus' return? I hope we do. And I know that in my own heart, as I asked those questions, I had to answer some answers that I didn't really want to. Some weeks, some seasons, some moments, we get real preoccupied with other things, with other challenges. And we forget and we need to be reminded back of who Jesus is. And I think this is why it's so essential for us to spend time in the Word every day. Because tomorrow might really be hard. And I might forget everything that I need to. But when I open up scripture and I read, I'll be reminded that I have a Savior who walks with me in whatever struggle that I have. Let's pray and then we're going to flip just a couple of pages back and we're going to celebrate communion together, which is very fitting because not only are we looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus in the act of communion, but we're also celebrating that until he comes again. So let's pray. God, thank you for these simple, short nine verses that, that focus us on your second coming. God, thank you that we do have hope for our loved ones who declare Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that we know that we will be with them again, that their bodies will rise and be changed and transformed, but also that we right now, if you come back today, tomorrow, next year, whatever it might be, for those of us who are left in that moment, that we will be transformed and we will be changed as well. And God, I pray that we would look forward to that with eager expectation. Not worried about the day or the hour, but that we are focused on eternity. And so how we live, what we say, how we live out our jobs, what we do, all those things are focused under the lens of you. So God, for those here this morning who are struggling with, how do I practically live for Jesus where I work? God, I pray that you would reveal to them how they can love their bosses, their employees, their coworkers their friends, and their families. That you would reveal to them a way in which they can live with intentionality on the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, help our lives to matter, not just for a few years, but help our lives to have eternal significance as we exalt Christ and we seek to make him known. 
God, as we enter into a time of communion now, we are reminded again of your sacrifice. And so as we read these words, may they impact our hearts. And would we be reminded of the depth of love that Jesus had for us in going to the cross. Amen. So if you want to flip back to 1 Corinthians 11, and if you don't have uh, a cracker and, uh, and drink there for communion, you can just put your hand up here and he's already ahead of me. Okay, he's got it. Let me read to you, starting in verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice he's already talking about a second coming. Again, as I was reading in Luke this week, Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, knowing full well that Judas is about to betray him. And yet we read of the love that God had for his, or that Jesus had for his disciples and for Judas. Even though he knew he was about to be betrayed, even though he knew that Judas was going to hand him over to be crucified, and as we read in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that Jesus was not, he's not looking forward to that moment, but pleading with the Father for there to be another way. Even in that, his love outweighed what I'm sure all of us would feel. How could you betray me? How could you do that to me? How could you take money instead of salvation? And so when I read this, again, this, this communion text that we read each week, in that light that Jesus knew that as he's praying this, as he's handing this out, that one was there who was going to betray him, but still chose to love him, I'm reminded that Jesus' love has no limits. And praise the Lord for that. That nothing that we have done is outside of the realm of Jesus' blood to forgive our sins. Let's continue. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. The body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so this morning, as we, in just a moment, take communion together, I want us to just spend that moment examining our own hearts and asking, God, is, is your love radiating out of me or, or am I just trying to love others on my own? Because if we try, if we just try harder, we're never going to do it. But if we allow Christ's love to come into us, then even those who have betrayed us and hurt us, even those who have cheated us, even those who have done, and you can fill in the blank however you want. God loves them desperately and he wants you to love them desperately. So let's pray for a few moments here and then we'll eat and we'll drink together. God, thank you for the cross. 
And so as we consider our own hearts, as we consider what's in our lives that needs to be dealt with, that we have not given up over to you. God, would we be willing to do that this morning? Would we love people with your love and not our own? God, help us to forgive others. Help us to long that they would turn to see Jesus, that they would know who he is and that they would be part of our spiritual family. So God, as we've been examining our hearts now, I pray that you would reveal to each one what needs to be dealt with. That we would lay those things at the foot of the cross, praising you that you have forgiven all of our sin. God, thank you for all you're doing in this. Thank you that Jesus went to the cross and that his body was broken for us. Amen. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And God, as we hold the cup in our hands, as we consider its impact, we are reminded that only your blood could forgive sin. But God, as we've been talking over the last month about resurrection, your blood was not only spilled for us that we might have forgiveness, but it's through your blood that we can have resurrection, that we can be with you again. And so God, we thank you that those that we love that loved you, that we know we will see them again. But as Paul says, for those of us here right now, help us to eagerly await your coming. That us celebrating your death and resurrection wouldn't just be a monthly occurrence, but that it would be a regular occurrence in our lives. That we would thank you for your salvation every day. God, we are so grateful for your blood, which forgave us of all of our sins and which has the power to heal and to bring us back to life even when nothing else could. And so God, we celebrate that you are coming again and that we will be with you for all of eternity because of your blood. Amen. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we go from this place today, Help us to not lose focus as we go back to our jobs, perhaps even tonight or tomorrow, as we go back to our normal routines and the things that are in front of us. Help us to not be consumed with those things, but help us to always keep our focus on Jesus. Give us purpose and meaning for each day, for you alone can do that. God, we love you. Go with us this week in all that we do. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning to worship and open scripture together. I hope that we see you again next week. And if you do, just remember to think of Jim and Selena next Sunday morning as they drive off to Mexico. Not in a, not in a judge, or in a, in a, in a, what's the right word? No words. We all want to escape the snow even though it just came. So we...
enjoy it for you.